Lord, in these next few minutes, uh, I want to pray first this morning. We want to lift up a, another church in our community. I want to pray for grace, fellowship. I want to pray for Steve Lawson and his family. I want to pray for his marriage. And in front of all that, I'm going to pray for his worship. I pray for the time that he spends in the Word, that he spends plenty of time um, reveling in who you are and what you've done, but that he also spends plenty of time raging, searching for you, clawing at the Scriptures, fighting for study time, wrestling with you, searching for truth. I pray that it just gushes over into his life and shapes him into be a man that looks like Christ and a man that looks less like Steve. I pray that his wife is blessed by that, his family um, sees the work that you're about in his life. I pray that that spills over into his preaching and his ministry uh, to the body there. Lord, I pray that um, the church is enjoying you and I appreciate uh, Grace's specific angst against religion, bad religion specifically. I'm thankful for um, their really almost aggression against man-made um, things, checks in the block. Lord, I pray that we'll be in fellowship with them this morning as we consider some of the same. Um, Lord, I pray that we will be a church as well as grace that is completely satisfied in what you're completely satisfied in in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, that we are bathed in his blood, and that we never even for a moment consider our righteousness being earned. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that you will speak in spite of me, that you'll give clarity to something that really, really is a mess. that you will actually um, expose truth that we need. We'll walk away changed. Thankful for Jesus, Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Turn to John 14, please. We're finishing up a series of sermons on obedience. John 14 has sort of been an obedience chapter for us. We began 2009. I can't remember if we began John 14 in 2009, but it was something like that. It was sort of a theme in John 14 of obedience. There's some passages that he exposed in these last few hours before he goes to the cross. Verse 15, these aren't critical, essential to the sermon, but it's just for context. In verse 15, he says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In verse 16, there's good news. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. We will have a helper in obedience. That's good news. Then in verse 21 and verse 23, passages that are more familiar to us where we've really been camped out these last few weeks. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Things we've drawn out these last few weeks is that the true lover owns Christ's ways and his commandments and that there's sweet blessing in that sort of love is that God manifests himself to the true lover. And the father, he and the father make their home with the true lover. And then where we're going to go this morning, we're going to sort of synthesize those truths with verse 31. It's where we're really focused this morning. Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I hope you see a connection there between love and obedience. Jesus says, I'm asking of you what I am doing and what I'm fulfilling. I'm loving the Father and the world will see that by my obedience. Three observations I want to draw just from that passage before we're going to do what I'm calling a love, excuse me, an obedience love examination this morning. First of all, Jesus did perfectly what he asks of us. You don't need to turn there. You can jot this down. I want you to just listen. 
Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. This is speaking about our Jesus. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. In other words, you could insert one who has absolutely obeyed perfectly. He has no need like those high priests, speaking of the old high priests of old, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. You may have never really pieced that together or thought about that, but the high priests of old who went in to offer sacrifices or just the daily priests who were offering daily sacrifices, you need to realize they're offering sacrifices also for themselves. As they're cutting up and slicing and dicing animals one right after another and blood's flying everywhere that blood's covering their sin too but our christ was different he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins because he had none and then for those of the people since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself christ did exactly what he's asking of us perfectly That's where we're going to begin the morning, and that's where we're going to end the morning. And that is really going to be the salt of this message. Secondly, from this passage, that his obedience had a purpose. It says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that. If you have a version, I haven't really looked at any other versions. I trust that the New American Standard would be faithful here. The English Standard Version would be faithful. The NIV sometimes takes away these important terms in translation. If you have a, ve- a version that doesn't bring out so that, then I would recommend finding another version. This so that is what's called a henna clause, and they're all through our Bible, especially in the New Testament, in the Greek. Henna is a Greek word, and it could be translated so that. It could also be, be translated in order that. I have obeyed the Father for a purpose. It's a purpose clause. I have obeyed the Father perfectly. I have done what the Father has commanded me so that for a purpose that the world may know that I love the Father. His obedience had design and it had purpose. It wasn't just because, C-U-Z. It had purpose. And that purpose he points to here is that this sends a worldwide message, not just geographically, but also chronologically. Here, 2,000 2000 years later, we're sitting and enjoying that that love was perfect. We have to ask the question, why would it need to be validated with obedience? I mean, couldn't he just say, I love the Father? Isn't that... Pretty easy to just say that. Anyone can say they love God. Moving our lips is easy. And in fact, Israel was great at moving their lips when their hearts were far from him. But obedience says more than your lips can say. Like the book of James says, show me your faith by your works. It's almost as if Jesus is saying here, I'm going to show you by love, my love by my obedience. It's going to send a message that will reverberate geographically and reverberate through the ages. His love has a tell. It has a reveal. It has a show. And that tell, show, reveal is obedience for his father and to and for his father. You have to consider what message would he be sending were he disobedient or selectively obedient? What message do we send people when we selectively obey? We send the message ultimately that we love ourselves and we're going to obey what we like to obey. But his love was absolute and perfect. I will show you my love by my obedience. I want to take this formula. I want to take sort of the synthesis of verse 21 where he says that whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And I want to synthesize this with Christ saying, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father I want us to synthesize those things and do a little obedience love examination this morning. He tells true lovers that we are to obey him. And he tells us to obey him as he has obeyed the Father. So we can and should and must examine our love for him through this lens of his love for his Father. 
Hopefully we've established the last few weeks that you see love as obedience and obedience as love. That if you're not obedient yet you say you love him, you don't love him at all. You're a liar. That love obeys and obedience loves. Hopefully you've connected that by now. But have you considered what this passage is showing us? That our obedience actually has a purpose. That it actually sends a message. Thought about this before. We've been in Greenville seven years, and Christy and I were called here. We came to Greenville on mission. How many of you think of yourselves on mission in Greenville, our, our Rockwall, our Caddo? We were called here by mission, and sometimes we forget about that. But just thinking for a moment that we were called here by mission, are we seeing ourselves as ambassadors and messengers for God and his story and his work at L3, at Rubbermaid, on Sale Street, at Walmart? (laughs) Are we seeing ourselves as actual ambassadors and messengers who are sending a very real message? Do you realize that your life sends a message about what you think about God? It's easy to say, I love Jesus, but your life will be the tell. Your life will be the show. Your life will be the reveal. That's what will show the world who you really love. Now, let's do our little love examination this morning, obedience love examination. Turn to Matthew 5. What I want to do in these next few minutes is I want to take a look at some of the things that Jesus might have been thinking about as he's saying that the true lover will have my ways and keep my commandments. I want to look at some of the the stuff that must have been on his mind as he's charging the disciples with obeying and thereby demonstrating their love to the world. We're going to do a little examination From Matthew chapter 5, I want to tell you, just to give you a little bit of context, the Luke version of this, you know that our our Gospels give us some um, um, additional views on a passage, and sometimes from different perspectives. The Luke version of this tells us that Jesus is aiming this Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 5 at believers. He's aiming it at disciples, specifically his disciples. Now, there was a crowd there. But he's talking to those who are following him. So we can sit down with the disciples this morning and we can listen to what he has to say. He begins the Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew chapter 5 with a series of blessed are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. These are the sort of people who are going to inherit this kingdom of God. That's how he begins it. Then in verse 13, looking at the disciples... Looking at us through the text, he says, disciples, he says, people of Crosspoint who claim Jesus is Savior and Lord, you are the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, disciples, people of God, 2,000 years later, Cross Point Fellowship in Greenville, Texas, let your light shine before others so that, see that hint of clause? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This passage sort of introduces us to the rest of the chapter. And the rest of the chapter is really an exposition of what it means to be salty and what it means to be light. John Stott said of these next few words, these next few passages we're going to consider. He said, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. As we climb into this, man, I want you to be honest with yourself. Every single person in here. Let's let the Word of God stand as God's standard. 
for what he expects of us, what God's best is for us. And let's examine it honestly. I want us to look both at what he's commanded here, and I also want us to consider kind of in the back of our minds what he actually obeyed, because they're both embedded in this passage. Start in verse 21. Jesus goes on to say, again, he's talking about what it means to be salty and bright. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Easy. No brainer. But I say to you guys that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This passage, as you're thinking about it, you may think it seems like a good idea. Like it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we don't want to be angry with people. Not really taking in the full weight of what he's saying here. You're liable to the same judgment as the murderer. And the one who's angry in his heart with his brother might as well pull out a gun and kill him. If we take in the full weight of that, then we get the point there. We get what he's saying. And I've got to ask the question of every single person in here. Have you ever been so mad that you couldn't see straight? Have you ever been so mad with your spouse that you nearly broke your door or broke it completely? Christy and I have been so mad at each other that it just becomes explosive. Have you ever been so mad with anyone that you might as well have killed them when you look at it through the lens of this passage? And this is what Jesus is thinking about. Obey this. Do not live this way. Obey this and show your love for the world and not being explosive in your anger. And I'm thinking, oh man, I'm done. Have any of you murdered because you've been so angry with your brother? Considering the second part of this passage, have any of you ever found it easier to just walk out on a relationship than to reconcile? Have any of you ever found it easier to just leave a church rather than work things out? Leave a family, leave a community, leave a marriage? Man, I'm looking at this and going, man, that's a high standard. And this is what Jesus is thinking about as he's saying, obey this as I obey the Father. Show your love for the world as I've shown my love for the Father. He's presenting standards like this. I'm going, whew. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just a look. It moves beyond a look to entertaining a thought, and you've already committed adultery. Is there any grown man in here that's not an adulterer? You might be visually impaired, and that's actually a weird blessing. If there's a man in here that does not reckon with this and say, no, I'm an adulterer, then you've missed it. We're not doing so well in this love examination so far. We're seeing this standard, the thing that he's thinking of, here's what I want you to do when I'm gone to show your love for the world, and we're going, Ugh. the natural man in me just wants to let my eyes go wherever I want to go. The natural man in me has an explosive temper. The natural man in me would rather hurt you than reconcile with you. Let's look at the next one, verse 31. Verse 31 says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Sticky topic right here because a lot of y'all have gone through this. 
as I'm looking at this passage, I have to ask myself the question. We have to hold up God's standard for what, it, for what marriage means. And I have to ask myself the question, if something happened years from now, Christy walked out on our marriage, could I remain single? Could I hang with decades of an empty marriage bed because of what Jesus says right here? Could I show my love for the world in obeying this passage absolutely and not trying to renegotiate? The next one I think is the hardest for me, beginning in verse 38. Verse 38 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Any man with a single hair on his chest have a problem with that? Do not resist the evil one, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic or your shirt, let him take your cloak or your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. As I'm looking at a passage like this, I'm going, resist not the evil man? And I'm thinking, man, what about my right to bear arms? What about my right to defend myself? That's God-given, right? It's in our Constitution. It must be from the Bible. I'm thinking, too, what about my responsibility to protect my family from harm? Where it's, I, wear, bet, I bet most of you men are thinking right now. I'm thinking, what about my responsibility to not leave my children fatherless? And my wife, a widow. What Jesus presents here is the idea of offering up yourself and all that you have to the evil man. Offering your coat to the one who sues the shirt off your back, literally. Here you go. I'm looking at this, man. I'm saying, man, I'm in bad shape with this obedience love test. I'm in real bad shape. I have a 44 Magnum with a big scope on top that I hunt deer with. It's a pistol. And it's like Clint Eastwood. Just, it makes noise pulling it out of the holster. People drop dead. You don't even have to fire it. I know how to use it. I'm thinking an evil man breaks in my home, I'm going to take care of business. But I'm looking at this going, oh, man. I'm not warm to the idea of resisting not the evil man. I don't think so. I fear that might mean my ruin. And I look at verse 46. Jesus says, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? The things that he could have had in his head as he's saying the true lover obeys, I'm looking at it going, I'm not a true lover because I can't do these things. I'm going to locate and close with and destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver if he busts in my house. I'm thinking these notions are unthinkable. I'm thinking someone tries to sue me and my hard-earned stuff, and I'm going to take them to the cleaners. I will take them out is what is just the natural thing that unfolds in me. And I'm looking at these passages and going, man, there must be some other workaround. There must be some other way. Because this leaves me ruined. Certainly Jesus wasn't thinking of these sort of things. I'll share with you two stories. One is about a young woman named Blandina. I was reading to the kids a couple months ago. I, I, we homeschool our kids, and I teach on Fridays when I'm off. And um, one Friday, I was reading this story to the kids. And it blew me away. It's about a young woman named Blandina. She died at the age of 22. She lived from the years of 155 to 177 A.D. Indulge me and listen to this short story. 
A young slave, slave woman, Blandina, gasped for air as she lay shaking on the damp stone floor. Let me tell you, too, that any quotes are in here are valid quotes that came from early accounts. This, it's sort of historical fiction in that he weaves these quotes together in a tangible story, but they're based on real accounts. Blandina gasped for air as she lay shaking on the damp stone floor. Several fellow Christian prisoners had suffocated during the night, and Blandina closed her eyes to shut out the sight of their pale, lifeless faces. Suddenly, the cell door creaked open, and a Roman soldier shouted, Get up, godless. Come with me. Blandina and the other prisoners were dragged out of their cells and into the arena. Shielding their eyes from the brilliant sunlight, the Christian men, women, and children, children huddled together in the center of the arena. The spectators shouted curses at them. Towering over them on a raised platform stood the Roman governor of Gaul, a laurel wreath crowning his head. Listen to me, you godless, the governor said. You Christians offend our gods and bring down their wrath upon us. But if you will just swear by Caesar, I will release you. Silence fell over the arena. Squeezing the hands of two friends, Blandina trembled and pled with God for strength. And a few Christians stepped out of the huddle with downcast faces, swore the oath to Caesar. They were permitted to leave the arena, but most stood their ground. Very well then, the governor said, you've chosen the beast, the fire, and the sword. Pulling several Christians from the group, soldiers beat them with whips and slashed at them with swords. The crowd roared its approval. Then from the group of prisoners, a young man, Vettius, moved toward the governor's platform. Your Excellency, I humbly seek permission to speak on defense of the Christians. I can prove to you that there's nothing godless or wicked in us. The pagan spectators howled at him. Ignoring Vettius' request, the governor asked, asked him with disdain, Are you a Christian? I am, Vettius answered loudly, standing unbowed before the governor. With a wave of his hand, the governor signaled the guards, and they drew swords and cut Vettius down on the spot. And then the governor summoned Sanctus, a deacon of the church, from the crowd in the arena and asked, What is your name? I am Christian, Sanctus answered. Where were you born? asked the governor. I am Christian, Sanctus answered. Are you slave or free? I am Christian, Sanctus answered, and the soldiers started to whip him and beat him, but still his answer to every question remained, I am Christian. The enraged governor ordered his body crushed between two red-hot copper plates. He died standing firm in his faith. Blandina and the other Christians were returned to prison. From morning to night, jailers punished frail Blandina. They pierced her body with daggers and crushed her limbs upon the rack. Curse Christ, they taunted. Tell us all the wicked deeds the godless do. I am a Christian, Blandina answered. We do nothing to be ashamed of. At the close of the day, the jailers could scarcely believe she was still breathing. Her body was so broken. Listen to this. Radical obedience sends a message. It says something to the world. Who are these Christians? The jailer said to one another. They go willingly and cheerfully to their deaths? The next day, soldiers again brought Blandina and some other Christians to the arena. She was hung on a wooden post intended as food for wild animals. Blandina lifted her eyes to the Lord and prayed aloud, Oh, Father, strengthen us as we suffer for the glory of Christ. Her faith gave fresh courage to the others. One by one, the believers died, torn to pieces by the beasts. But to the crowd's amazement, Blandina remained untouched by the animals, and the guards hauled her back to prison yet again. A few days later, she was again returned to the arena, now with Ponticus, a Christian boy of 15. Stand firm, dear Ponticus, Blandina urged him. Again, they were whipped and attacked by animals, and soon Ponticus lay dead. But Blandina, her body bloodied and broken, yet survived, her face radiant with the peace of Christ. She looked, one eyewitness said, here world gets the message. She looked, one eyewitness said, as if she were invited to a wedding feast, not thrown to the beasts. If Blandina had a forty-four magnum with a scope on top, Could she have sent this message? That seems ridiculous. But just think about it. 
Her persecutors, frustrated and angry, wrapped her in a net and threw her to a bull that tossed her around the arena. Finally, a soldier reached down and slew her with a sword. The pagans said they had listened. Here, world sees and hears. The pagans said they'd never seen a woman suffer so much or so long. The bodies of Blandina and the other Christians lined the streets of lions. Guards stood watch, preventing their friends from giving them a decent burial. Listen, the world listens. Listen what, what they say next. Why won't you let them bury their dead? The guards were asked. So they may have no hope in the resurrection, they answered. It is this hope that gives them such courage. Yes. Yes. It's this hope that says, I will not resist the evil man. Even when it means my ruin. After six days, the bodies were burned to ashes and thrown into the Rhone River. Now let's see if they'll rise again, the guard said. Blandina sent a message to that little world in Gaul that she loved something more than her own life. That something was worth loving more than her own life. And it did what Jesus said, obedience even unto death sent a message to the world. Another man named Nate Saint was born in 1923. He died on January 8th, 1956. This picture was taken two days before his death. He was an avid flyer from his childhood on. He began taking flying lessons in high school, and during World War II, he served in the U.S. Army. He was forced to leave the Army because of an infection that flared up in his leg. He enrolled in Wheaton College following the war, but dropped out before graduating in order to join Mission Aviation Fellowship. In 1948, with his wife... Marjorie Ferris, he began working in Ecuador, establishing an air base at an abandoned oil exploration camp called Shelmera, from which he supplied local missionaries with medicines, mail, and other necessities. In September 1955, after the arrival of teammates Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, and Peter Fleming, Saint found a Huarani settlement while searching by air, Huarani Indians. In order to reach the remote tribe, Saint and the team lowered gifts, including machetes and clothing, to, a, to the Huarani in a bucket tied to the plane. The Huarani were a widely feared tribe because of their chronic fear and anger. They tended to attack and kill any outsiders without provocation. Nevertheless, the tribe displayed excitement on receiving the gifts and soon gave back gifts of their own. After three months of successful air contact, the missionaries decided to attempt to meet the people on the ground. And on January 3rd, Three days before this picture, they set up camp four miles from the Aka settlement, using a portion of the beach as a landing strip. Their initial personal contact with the Huarani started out encouraging. That's this picture here. See, he's got a little toy airplane, and this Indian here is eating like a donut or something. They're like, yeah, give him some more donuts. <laughs> this is going well. And he's sitting there gnawing on a sandwich or something. Their initial personal contact started out encouraging. However, on Sunday, January the 8th, two days later, the entire team was killed on the beach when armed Huarani met the men met them. Saint was speared first, this man, by a young warrior named Minkaye. Saint's body was later found downstream and buried with those of the other men. Now Nate Saint's son, 50 years later now, works with the Wayodani Indians and often travels around the world preaching the gospel and he's accompanied by somebody. He's accompanied by a man named Minkaye. The man that speared his daddy. You can't tell me that a man that didn't serve in the war that knew how to fly an airplane didn't consider that we want to be packing when we go into harm's way. I've got a wife and I got a son. I know how to use my 45. Do I want to bring that on my hip when we go see these Indians and camp out on the river? They had to have deliberated over that. But this little piece of the world in Ecuador saw that Nate Saint loved Jesus more than his own life because Jesus is worth loving that much. 
that sort of love, that sort of obedience that just undoes you, that ruins you, sends a message to the world. It sent it to this little part of the world, and it sent it to a man named Menkaye who's still serving the Lord right now. If Nate Saint had hosed him down with his 45 or whatever, he couldn't have sent a message of grace and mercy. He would have sent the message that he's handy with his 45. These people's lives and their obedience screamed and continues to scream that they love God and that he's worth loving. Self-controlled and reconciled lives say, I love Jesus. Obedient lives to the point of ruin say that you love something more than life itself. Eyes for your wives only say, I love Jesus. Men, don't think that your boys don't watch your face when you're in the mall or when you're at the grocery store. Don't think that your little boys don't pay attention where your eyes go. And when you have eyes for your wife only, that says, I love Jesus. Sticking it out in a difficult marriage says, I love Jesus. Or should your spouse abandon you, which has happened to some in this body, sticking it out single for the rest of your days for the glory of God says, I love Jesus. It screams it. To a world who says, man, let's renegotiate. To us who typically say and can say, let's renegotiate. Resisting not the evil man when it's your right. Who would have blamed Nate Saint if he'd had a 45? I mean, really? Who would have blamed Blandina if she could have called in the rescue? Man, they were going to kill you. But resisting not the evil man says, I love Jesus. Loving your enemies says, I love Jesus. We say something when we live like this, this Matthew 5 picture. We say something to the world. We live salty and bright. It's interesting that he started the chapter out by saying, this is what salt and light means. What are we when we don't live this way? We're salt without its flavor. We're light hidden under, bu under a bushel. But God's people, obedient lovers, are to live for the city to come. We're to say, we're just visitors here. So take my life, take my stuff, take my dignity. Take all of it, because I'm just a visitor. Our home is with the Lord. We say our love for God is greater than even life. As Christ's love served a purpose, so does ours. Loving him more than our own lives sends a message to the world that something or someone is worth loving that much. And I'm going to tell you right now, it makes daily martyrs. If we're honest with that Matthew chapter 5 passage, it makes daily martyrs who are looking at it saying, my God, I need grace today. I'm ruined if I actually do that. You're exactly right. That's what it means to bear your own cross. We're living for a city to come. We're living for a glory to come. We're living for a home to come. We're living here as visitors, as pilgrims, as sojourners. But I fear, my fear personally is that I trade these sort of teachings that Christ must have been thinking of as he's saying, have my ways and keep my commandments. I trade them for a different list of doables. Look at Mark chapter 7. <coughs> Excuse me, that was really a bummer, I'm sorry. Mark chapter 7. reading this with a family last week 
And I was thinking, man, that's it. That's what we do. Mark chapter 7. It says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. You'll see why I do this in a minute. Unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did I, well, did Isaiah the pro- prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments, the doable list of men. You leave the commandments of God and you hold to the tradition of men, the list of doables. I fear that we replace the hard teachings. As John Stott said, this is the, the arguably the most familiar passages in our Bible of Christ's teaching, but the least understood and the least obeyed. I agree with you, John. In my life, I'm going to say, Shaul is. Resist not the evil man? Uh-uh. I'm going to take him down. We replace hard teachings with doable man-made things like hand washings. Our versions of hand washings don't see rated R movies. That's what Christians do. Don't listen to secular secular music. We listen exclusively to Christian music. That's what we do. Christians don't cuss. Christians don't smoke. And man, you know we don't drink alcohol. There's a little list of doables that we trade out. And I'm going to argue that these things, without condoning it and saying, go get drunk and watch a bunch of rated R movies, smoke a cigarette. I'm going to say, these aren't a good replacement for these sort of radical teachings that will undo you. These don't scream to the world, I love Jesus. Passing on beer at your dinner does not scream, I love Jesus. It just says, oh, he don't want to bury his dinner. <laughs> Not smoking doesn't say, I love Jesus. It says, oh, he doesn't smoke. If your Christianity is limited to this little doable list, only listen to Christian music. Don't see rated R movies. Don't drink alcohol. Don't cuss. Don't smoke. If that's your Christianity, I'm going to say, instead of screaming to the world, I love Jesus, that screams to the world, I'm a goober. (laughs) I don't think Jesus was thinking about this little list of doables while he's saying, man, send the message to the world that you love me by obeying me. The problem is when we do this little doable list, we walk away a bunch of proud Christians that say, at least I'm not like those guys. A bunch of proud Pharisees. Look at us. We're God's gift to Christianity. How dare ye? Don't we? Man, that's what we do. Jesus said of that sort of attitude that looks all shiny on the outside, that you're whitewashed tombs. Dead on the inside. I think it's just so important that Jesus in his final hours before the cross is talking so much about obedience. And that if we connect the dots, we can think he mu- he's talking about some really difficult things that are going to mean my ruin. Realizing that that is the soil of relationship with him. When you're looking at teachings like that in Matthew chapter 5 and you're saying, oh, i got to reconcile with that guy. Oh, I want to joke him. 
I'm going to do the Christian thing by just avoiding him. <laughs> right? Can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. Where's that? I'm, I, I believe that the soil of relationship is trying to be this person. That's where we find that we are raging after Christ. We're having to. That's why we're begging. That's where we live. Or if we live there, we're begging for mercy every single day. We're clinging to the Holy Spirit. Oh, Spirit, that helper that you promised in John 14. I need some help. Because I can't do that. I believe that this sort of obedience that will mean you're undoing is the proving ground for faith. It's the battlefield that says to the world that we love something greater than our own life. It's the dinner table for relationship with God. It's the meat and the marrow of the faith. The meat and marrow of the faith is not to do your little doables and to just whenever you have a bum toe or something to pray. shared this story a couple times this week. A few years ago, I was in a small group in South Carolina and um, meeting with some men as kind of a result of the promise keepers who would really, in light of where I'm about, I mean, if we're honestly dealing with Matthew chapter 5, we should have been called the promise breakers because that's really who we are. We're meeting together. I've been serving in the Marine Corps Infantry, which there's no women in the Marine Corps Infantry. You need to know that. <laughs> no ladies at all. I mean, for years, I'm serving and never seeing nary a lady. <laughs> Just a bunch of ugly men. And then I go from that to leaving the Marine Corps, marrying Christy, and then working at University of South Carolina as a graduate student and walking around a, a university campus where women are not really chaste. I don't mean C-H-A-S-T. E-D, I mean C-H-S-T-E. Pure. It's like their goal in life is let me show you nearly all of my goods. Let me show you nearly everything that I got. And I'm walking around campus going from that contrast to this, and I'm like, dudes, I need y'all to pray for me, man. I, I, I want to make a covenant with my eyes because I want to look at my, only at my wife. And I'm walking around this campus with a bunch of scantily clad women. And these four other dudes looked at me like, Man, what's wrong with you? I, you could have heard the crickets. I said it, and then I shared it, and they look at me like, crickets, 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 crickets. And I said, oh, okay. That's the first time I'm going to share my trash with anybody, and it's going to be the last time. <laughs> so from that point on, you know the kind of prayer requests I shared? Man, my leg's hurting me today, you know. Mm. Can you pray for my leg? It's a diversion, right? It's a diversion. Pray for this instead of let's dealing with that. Let's not deal with that ugly soil where we fail and where we need Jesus every single day. Let's deal with some other stuff. I'm not saying don't pray for your leg. <laughs> but I'm saying this is the journey. This is where we come into real relationship with him. And this drama that unfolds in the life of a believer is what puts the gospel on display and puts love of God on display. A bunch of frail people that are raging after him and failing and getting back up and flinging themselves out of the boat. Not a bunch of people that are limited to just praying for each other's bobos. Living in pursuit of his ways and his commandments will put your love for him on display, but I promise you it will ravage you. It will ravage you, but it will send a message. Lima Charlie, those of you who ever talked on the radio, loud and clear, Lima Charlie, to the world that we love something more than our own undoing, that we love something more than even our own lives. It sends a message to the world that our God is worth loving. And the aim of this message this morning is not to condemn all that you are or do. As I'm reading about 
32-year-old Nate Saint, 22-year-old Blandina, as you're hearing those stories and you're hearing this sort of Matthew chapter 5, you, like me, can walk away going, man, I am absolutely toast. I can never do that. I'm just done. I see his amazingly high standard and I just can't do it. So the aim of this message is not to condemn you and all that you are. It's an honest obedience love exam holding up the shocking standard of what he wants us to obey and the impact when we do. That's the first part. But the second part is you hold up that high standard and we're all honest with each other, we've got to recognize that nobody has achieved that. Even the best of us need lots of grace. Blandina needed just as much blood of Jesus as I do. Nate Saint needs, just as, needs the blood of Jesus just as much as you do. I heard Mark Driscoll say, if, this, if life was a Western, we'd all be wearing black hats and wearing, riding black horses and spitting tobacco. I'm, I'm embellishing his thing. It's good, though. Jesus would be the only one on a white horse with a white hat. The rest of us would be the scoundrels. Man, the aim of this message is to hold up his high standard, but also to hold up the finished work of Jesus Christ as the one who fulfilled what he commanded us to do. So two things take place. The thing that should take place first is where this message began, that Christ fulfilled the law and fulfilled God's commandments perfectly. That's where we end this message because that's what's going to fuel us doing this is enjoying that he completed that. And that on your best day, you need the blood of Jesus more than you can know. (laughs) On your best day. And that our only hope is to be clothed in his righteousness when we stand before the living God. Because my best righteousness is filthy rags. The best I've got to offer. So there's a twofold point in this message, and that point is to hold up this amazing, shocking, undoing standard of obedience that will mean you're ruined. And then also to say that as you fail in it, not if you fail, but as you fail in it, day to day to day to day, that you're going to be clothed in his righteousness, thankfully. So what it should create in every single one of us is a joyful humility and a humble joy. That's what fuels worship. A realistic, honest engagement, examination that says, I have failed the living God and I'm going to fail him yet again today. But thankfully, my righteousness will never be based on my own. My salvation will never be based on my performance. It will be based only and absolutely on the finished work of Jesus Christ who obeyed it perfectly. And I want to be clothed in his righteousness today. That's where worship comes from. And then in being clothed in his righteousness, in enjoying what he's done, the the awesome thing is you look back at these things like anger and lust and Resisting not the evil man. And you see a change over time. You see he knocks off sharp edges. Over time being the key. It doesn't happen all at once. But you see over years and over decades of worship and wonder and enjoying what he's done. That he changes you to look more like Christ. But never mistake that your salvation and your pleasing God, you can't please God. The best you can hope for is to be clothed in the one who did please him every single day. And the sweet promise is when you are, he's going to change you. And it's going to send a message to the world. Christ fulfilled exactly what he's asked us to do. He resisted not the evil man, right? When they spit on him... And they beat him and they nailed him to a cross as they shouted, give us Barabbas. He resisted not the evil man. The thing that I'm looking at saying, I can't do that. 
He did. As I'm thinking, I can't pray for my enemies. I want to choke them. I'm thinking he did when I think about him praying from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know know not what they do. He fulfilled the very thing he's called us to do. We failed the obedience love test, but he didn't. He didn't. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful. I'm so thankful that Christ's work is what reconciles us to you. I'm so thankful as I examine my life and my frailties, my shortcomings, and my weaknesses, and my sins. I see that our righteousness is based on another. Lord, we see grace on display when we see you giving us that opportunity to put on Christ. Lord, I pray an impact of this morning's message will be that we swallow hard as we consider what Christ's commandments are of us. And then we shout for joy when we see that he fulfilled those commandments. And Lord, we pray in the same breath by grace and mercy that you will shape us into the image of Christ who stands like a sheep before shears before the evil man who prays for those who persecute him. Lord, I confess that I don't have that in me. That's got to come from you. Lord, I pray that as you grow us as a people into this image of Christ, that our love for you will be on display to the world that will show Greenville, this little micro chunk of the world right here, that will show Greenville that our love for you is worth dying for. Our love for you is worth being undone for. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Share a passage from Hebrews. I think is an appropriate um, passage for us to consider before the Lord's Supper. It's the point of the message. There's a reality that we can have Christless Christianity. Uh, Bill Ruth gave me a book a while back. It's called Christless Christianity. I started reading it. It's got a picture of the Lord's Supper on the front without Jesus in it. He just cut out of it. Read the first paragraph. What would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Over a half century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario of this weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, this is cool, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. It's easy to become distracted from Christ as the only hope for sinners, where everything is measured by our happiness rather than by God's holiness. The sense of our being sinners becomes secondary, if not offensive. If we are good people who have lost our way, but with the proper instructions and motivation can become a better person, we need only a life coach, not a redeemer. Man, we need a redeemer. If we live by our little doables, and that's it, all we need is a life coach. Just help me tidy things up. If we look passages like Matthew chapter 5 square in the face, we go, man, I need a redeemer. I need a savior. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, today, every single day, every single minute. I need to be clothed in the righteousness of another because I don't have it on my own. 
Hebrews chapter 10, 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That ought to be good news to you, fellow failers in Matthew chapter 5. For by a single sacrifice, that being himself, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I'm going to put the law on their hearts, the very thing that's going to crush them, and then I'm going to give them hope and take their lawless deeds away in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Where there is forgiveness of these, these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's why we don't have to offer blood, bulls, and calves, and all that kind of stuff anymore. When he said it's finished, he meant it. It is finished. So as you work, you work within his finished work. As you work at Matthew chapter 5 to put the glory of God on display, you work in response to a finished work. Let's take the supper together shared this passage last week. This, this is really the, the, the dilemma. Joshua said to, said to the nation of Israel, he said, you are not able to serve the Lord. Just let that hit you. The Bible says that we're not able to please him. You are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. It takes one sin to get crossways with God. One sin. Sin is that corrosive and holiness is that pure. One sin to cross God. You're not able to serve God. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. And he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. That's a dilemma. And the only solution, the singular solution, the once and for all time solution is the broken body that we just gnawed on and blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. You got to know that Christianity is not just one religion among many in the world. It's the only faith that says you can't earn it. It's the only belief that says you cannot satisfy God, period. Your only hope is to be clothed in the only one who did and the only one who could, and that's Jesus Christ. As we take this blood, this cup, juice, it's not real blood. Let's celebrate that, that we're enjoying a work that was completely and absolutely outside of us, and it was perfect, and he loved well. Let's worship together as we take this. I don't know if you've paid attention to the front of the bulletins, but over the last four weeks, they've gotten redder and redder. This most recent one has almost the front is completely red. That's, we were talking about this you know, a month and a half or so ago and kind of talking about what's in store and really the point of these series of sermons on obedience is that we need lots of blood. <laughs> we need the blood of Jesus. And we need, we need it daily. And it's, it's not licensed to go crazy and do whatever you want to do. Paul said, may it never be. Instead, it actually is enabling to obey. It's freeing you up to obey. It's not freeing you up to go crazy and live worldly and stupid. And, and it's the contrary. It's freeing us up and giving us an indwelling Holy Spirit at helper to where we actually can, over time, begin to look like Jesus. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen that you, you know, immediately when you put your hand to it or you brag about it. It does it in God's timing. And he does it at his pace. So if you've walked away from this message or any of the last messages really discouraged, like, man, I'm not a very good, obedient person, then you missed it. I want you to go there, but I don't want you to land there. You land on the obedience of Christ. That it's his work that we enjoy. That's what worship is. You can't worship but that you go via your condition. I don't know what that is. If you don't deal and reckon with the fact that you're crossways with God and what that means and how much you need grace and mercy, I don't know what that is. That's club membership or something. Or a, a 
uh, I, I want to go to heaven policy. But real worship comes from going there first and saying, man, I look at Matthew chapter 5 and I am ruined. And then going to the next place that, oh, Jesus satisfied that. He's awesome. When you do that, that's called worship. I need Jesus. That's worship. I want to introduce a family. Oh, let me tell you too. If you're wrapped around, well, if somebody comes in my house, you mean I can't hose them down? If you're stuck on that, and I don't, I'm being facetious, I shouldn't do that because you may really legitimately be wrestling with that right now. I want to just tell you that you've missed the point. You're straining out a gnat. You're stuck on the tree. Look at the forest of Matthew chapter 5, and everybody should walk away going, oh, I'm done. Thankful for Jesus. And if you walk away too going, man, I sure am glad I can cuss and spit and smoke and go see rated R movies and all that kind of stuff. You've missed it too. That, that wasn't the point. You may need to listen to it again if that's what you walked away with. Or if you need to talk with any of the elders to process this or any of the small group leaders or any of the deacons. Man, I'm going to tell you right now, I will volunteer them as available. I, I can say that because I know that they'd be willing to sit down and talk with you. And so would I and the other elders. If you're wrestling through something, don't wrestle with that alone. Things are meant to be borne out and explained and unpacked in community. Okay. Love, lastly, let me introduce a new couple. Come on up. Uh, where are you? Adam and Laura. I saw you. There you are. Adam and Laura Bean. Uh, Adam and Laura I met with week before last and uh, had a chance to talk with them about their journey. They have been visiting with us these last few weeks, months, and um, really feel like the Lord is leading them to be part of this fellowship. Uh, they've worked through the membership covenant and are saying, man, we stand with y'all, and we want a covenant with you. We want to make that commitment to the Lord in front of y'all, public. Um, so that's what they're doing today. Uh, Adam works at uh, Starbucks, has hopes of going into the ministry and seminary at some point. And uh, we have, as a church, have sent folks to seminary before. And that'd be a neat opportunity to, uh, to be part of that journey with uh, Adam. So we'd have to see what that looks like um, when, that, when it gets here. And Laura teaches ninth grade. We'll pray for her right now. <laughs> like a saint. You see the little halo around her head over there? See, ninth grade English in there? Algebra. Yeah, that's right. We'll pray for you again. I encourage you to come up and meet this couple if you don't know them already. Even if you do, come up and welcome them to the fellowship officially. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss us. Lord, I want to pray for this couple and thank you so much for the sweet privilege that we have in store of walking together as family and um, just thankful for the finished work of Jesus Christ that uh, reconciles us as brothers and sisters and uh, just pray for that unity and just pray that it will be something that you maintain. Uh, that we walk in, that we enjoy. Pray for Adam and Laura that they will be used for your glory, uh, that they will minister well, that they will be equipped well, that they'll be teachable. I pray for the sermons week by week that they won't be terminal on Adam and Laura, but they will actually equip them for worship and wonder between Sundays and that they'll take it into their workplaces, into their neighborhoods, into their family settings, and uh, in the time that they have with each other. Lord, we are thankful for the time that we've had together as a family this morning. We're thankful for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Again, we count his work sufficient and finished. He is so seated at your right hand. And we love you, Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.